That was John chapter 14. Today we're going to be focusing on John 14, 1 through 4, and a message titled, Preparing a Place. When I was a volunteer chaplain in Kenosha at the hospitals, one of the reasons that people would call for the chaplain was because one of their loved ones was dying. Most often you'd get there and you'd walk into the room and you'd be greeted by a grieving family whose loved one was getting ready to take their last breath and somebody, usually a family spokesman or, or someone who would say, you know, pastor or father, depending on their uh, religious background, could you say a final prayer to make sure my loved one will get into heaven? And most often those kind of people, they came from either a Catholic background or had been exposed to the Catholic religion enough to know that there was something that the, the priest or the pastor is supposed to do to make sure those people can get into heaven. And as a chaplain, I would do my best, thankful for the Holy Spirit that he would lead me during those times. You know it's not the time to get into doctrinal discussions, but you just minister to the family and hopefully minister to the person enough where they can hear you and hopefully accept Christ as they are getting ready to pass into eternity. As part of our fallen condition, that it takes something as serious as death to remove our focus off of this life and start thinking about the next. And if you're going to walk down the street today and do an informal poll of everyone you came in contact and ask them the question, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Most people are going to say yes. And the reason that they would give you is because, well, basically I'm a good person. Or at least I'm not a murderer, or at least I'm not a rapist, or at least I don't do this, or at least I'm not one of, of those kind of people. How many people here would agree that's the answer that most people would give you? Or most people, how they would answer the question, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? In the next few weeks, Jesus is going to turn that thinking around and make us realize that it's only through him that we can be saved. We're beginning a section of John's Gospel called the Upper Room Discourse. And it's one of my favorite three chapters in the entire Bible. This Upper Room Discourse is all four Gospels condensed into three chapters. For anyone who is going to college or can even remember back to their primary school days, you know that when the exams were coming up, your teacher would usually stop the new teaching and go back and review everything you've gone through for that entire term. And especially, they would call it teaching the test. They would explain to you everything that was probably going to be on that test and tell you what you have to study for. And in many ways, these next 72 hours in the life of Jesus' followers is their final exam. Because Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. Jesus is getting ready to leave them, and they're going to be without him. Therefore, he has to make sure everything he has taught them is forefront in their mind as they go through this final exam. And being a good teacher, Jesus is summarizing the last three and a half years of his teachings in very, very plain language. You're not going to see a lot of stories. You're not going to see a lot of parables. You're not going to see a lot of illusions. He is going to get down and dirty and explain it exactly the way it is because he knows his time is short. This is the most important teaching that Jesus has done to date in all the Gospels. 
And it sets up the framework of how he is taking these Hebrew men who have grown up steeped in Hebrew thought, steeped in the Hebrew religion. He's taking them from this Old Testament religion and taking them into a New Testament belief and a New Testament faith that is based on relationship. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. And this is the last chance he's going to have to teach these future leaders in this small group setting like this. So every word of John chapter 14 through 17 carries so much weight and so much truth and so much heavy thought that it's hard to dissect it and put it into 30 to 40 minute sermons. But we're going to do our best the next few weeks. He's, Jesus is taking them from a form of religion that has been in existence for over 4,000 years and carrying it and taking it to the relationship that God has always wanted to have with every single person he's ever created. And today we're going to be studying that in these four verses in John chapter 14. And you might think, what's so meaningful and important about these four verses that we could spend a Sunday morning just looking at these? Most people, when they read these scriptures, think about that this is something that Jesus is talking about that's only for our future, or something that we're working toward as part of our reward in heaven. And what I want to show you today is how, number one, most of us, including myself, um, very often, have misinterpreted this in, in a lot of our lives and a lot of our beliefs. And second, why it is so important for us to understand what Jesus was trying to say here and exactly how it affects our lives today. So even though we saw portrayed in the video in the Gospel of John, let's read what Jesus had to say in John 14, verse 1. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you are also where I am. You know the place where I am going. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. And I ask, Lord, that you just take this opening few lines in the Gospel of John in this upper room discourse and use it to frame our thoughts around what you are going to be teaching us these next several weeks. I ask, Father, that you just help us to understand exactly how this fits in with the entirety of biblical history and how it really matters to our life today that we understand exactly what you were trying to say here. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now I want to talk about what Jesus means when he's talking about this place he is preparing for us. And the first thing I want to bring to you today is that it is not a house. In some, strip, in some versions of the Bible, it talks about, in my father's house there are many mansions. How many people grew up reading that? It's King James Version. In my father's house there are many mansions. I believed that for years. I thought, oh, you know, God, every, every good thing I did got me something better in my mansion. I believed this for a long time. I, you know, somebody would say, you know, thank you for coming and shoveling my driveway for me. I said, well, I just got thicker carpet in my mansion now. You know, that, that's the kind of the way I used to think about that verse. Or if I went and visited somebody in the hospital, I'd say, well, now I have oak paneling in my living room. 
you know, just different things as I would take that very literally in that this huge house that Jesus was building for me. And I want to address this first because unfortunately it does cause us to think wrongly about what heaven will be like. And I want to correct that this morning because if we're looking at heaven the wrong way, it will cause us to live our life here the wrong way because we have the wrong focus. And basic common sense tells us if that you're focused on the wrong thing, you can't get to the right place. If I really want to go and drive to Blair this afternoon, and I don't know the way, and I go and I study the map, and I study how to drive from Whitehall to Pigeon Falls, but I really want to go to Blair, where am I going to end up? I'm going to end up in Pigeon Falls, because I have no idea how to get to Blair. Our want does not determine our destination. Our focus determines our destination. It's a saying, focus determines reality, and it's important for us to have the right idea about heaven to make sure that we get there in the right way. And there's a quick principle that will guide us this morning, and we see it throughout the Bible, and it's one of the chief ways that we interpret the Bible. And that is this, God never changes. Some people believe that, that the God of the Old Testament was this cranky kind of malevolent God and somehow got saved between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and now he's nice. That's not, that's not it at all. He never has changed. From Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation 22, he has never, ever changed. His original blueprint for creation and all of his higher created beings has never changed. Many people believe that the fall of man caught God by surprise and he had to go to a plan B. No, the Bible plainly teaches that the Lamb of God was crucified since the beginning of the world. In other words, the cross was a plan of salvation. It was planned in. He didn't catch God by surprise. It was part of his plan. In other words, God had our salvation planned out before he even said, let there be light. It was all part of his plan. And if that is true, then the original created order and the reasons for you and me being here and created are still in effect. They haven't changed. Let me show you a few things in the Word. We go back to the beginning in Genesis 1.27. We looked at the created reason for, man, um, being, for mankind or humanity being here. In Genesis 1.27 it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, he gave them their purpose right here. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every other living creature that moves upon the ground. The next chapter echoes that same sentiment. In chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, when he said that God, Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So we were created with purpose. We were not just created to just kind of rest here and, and enjoy things. We were created to work. So what is the question according to the Word of God? What is the reason he created us? To rule and reign. That's a job. 
If anybody here has never been a boss, let me tell you, it is one of the hardest jobs on earth. Uh, of all the people, anybody here ever complain about their boss? I have. I don't know about you. I've complained about my boss quite a bit sometimes. But I also have been a boss, and I know how hard that job is. And yet God has created within each one of us the aptitude and want to rule, because that is what he created us to do. Bringing it home to what Jesus is saying that he created a place for us. If work is a reason that God created humanity, and since him and his plan never changes, what makes you think that heaven is a huge retirement village? Do we think that heaven is like Sandals North? We get to go there, play golf, and swim? No. That's what mo but that's what most Christians believe that heaven's going to be about. You see it even in the popular media. Hollywood shows um, heaven as us becoming these cherubs and sitting on a cloud and playing harps for our eternal destiny. How many people are looking forward to that? How many people are looking forward to seeing me in a diaper? I'm not. <laughs> that would be awful. I'd look terrible in a diaper. That's not our created purpose. That's not why God made us. That's the first thing I want to tell you about Jesus preparing a place for us, is that the first truth here is that it's not a mansion. This place that he is preparing for us is not this, this building for us to live in. It's a place of authority that you get to occupy to help him govern creation. Jesus says we get to reign and rule with him in heaven. In other words, it's a job. And I know I just depressed a whole lot of people here. Because many of you are thinking about, oh great, I get to heaven and God's going to put me to work. That's because we have the wrong idea about work. We think that work is a four-letter word that we don't want to talk about. Most of us on Monday mornings, it's usually the worst morning of our week. We trudge out to our cars, we drive off to work, singing, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. And we just look at our jobs as this trudgery and this awful thing that we have to go through. I've heard even some people say that the fact that we have to work is a part of the, of the fall of man. No, no, no. It was part of God's created design. Amen. One of the people in my life that really showed me the value of work was my Grandpa Anderson. Until he had to go to a nursing home, Grandpa always had three different jobs. At least three different jobs. The man knew how to work. He's a good Norwegian man, did not know how to take a day off. He was always working somewhere. One job he worked because he had to. The best paying job in town was working at the paper mill, and that's what he did for years. Two of his other jobs were the ones he actually liked doing. He worked for the forestry service as a forestry technician and occasional game warden. And around the time I was born, he was able to give up the job at the paper mill because his VA benefits finally started coming through because of injuries he had in World War II. So he could afford to only work for the forestry service, and it was a great fit. This is something my grandpa taught me. My grandpa was a man that loved to be in the outdoors. He loved that kind of hard physical work and working up a sweat. He loved gardening. That was his favorite hobby, and so this went right along with his favorite hobby. I remember when I would visit in the summer, when I was too young to stay home, he would take me to work in the forestry truck. And I would watch him plant trees and rake and, and, and take um, care of the Shawamigan National Forest. And the grandpa was always happiest when he was doing that kind of work. 
And I remember watching it as a child. He wasn't one of these guys that was out there cussing. He wasn't one of these guys that was out there complaining about the heavy work. He was just, he did it with a lot of joy because he loved to do it. And I remember watching that as a child and thinking, there is no way I'm going to want to do that kind of work. There's just no way. I, I thought that was like one of the worst jobs on earth because, I mean, he was getting flea, or not flea, mosquito bit, tick bit. He was just covered in sweat and pine needles and everything else. And I'm just thinking, man, that job just has to just be absolutely horrible. And I told him once driving home, I said, that is not something I'd want to do when I grow up, Grandpa. And he looked at me and he gave what I call the little Norwegian pause. Anybody know a Norwegian that pauses before they say something really profound? I know one. He's sitting right over there. They always give that little pause, and then they say something that is really, really important. And he told me, he said, Johnny, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. Just make sure it's something you want to do. When you find a job that you'll love, you'll never work a day in your life. Amen. There's a lot of wisdom there, and it's even some biblical truth, because it comes down to the point that you and I were created for a purpose. And it's today, it's my firm belief that the reason that so many people are depressed, so many people are addicted to drugs and alcohol and, and different things like that, and so many people are doing things that are ultimately destructive to themselves, is because they've never found their purpose. They've never found that passion. They've never found that reason for being that God has given them. You see, God gives each one of us passions. He gives each one of us skills, temperaments that are unique for certain kinds of work. It's our responsibility to seek Him and discover how these unique giftings are to be used in this life. This is so important for you to understand because it's one of the principal ways that the devil attacks is because he sees those giftings within you and he will attack you to keep you from going into God's purpose for your life. Because the enemy of your souls knows how powerful you could become if you come into that purpose. So he's going to do everything he can to distract you from seeking God and finding out what he wants you to do with your life. Maybe he uses money to do a different kind of job. There's more money in this over here. You know, why don't you go for that instead? Maybe he's stroking a laziness inside you to keep you from doing what it takes. Maybe what God has for you has to do with some education. So he keeps stroking like a laziness within you. It says, oh, you don't want to put in all that effort. What do you want to go back to school for? You're, you're 50 years old. What do you want to go do that for? You know, that, no, no, that's not what God wants you to do. Just be happy where you're at. Maybe it's getting you into relationships that will hinder you from becoming what God intended you to be. The devil's going to do everything in his power to keep you from fulfilling your destiny in God's kingdom. And there's a biblical example of it in Luke 22. You remember right before he was crucified, Jesus told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him as wheat? Remember that story in the Bible? And you ask, why did Satan all of a sudden take such an interest in Peter? It's because Satan saw potential. Satan heard the words that Jesus said when he said that you are going to be the rock I build my church upon. And Satan said, I got to get him. I got to take him down before he gets into his purpose. I have to, to wreck him before God can use him. Too often, you know, we want to blame God for the hard stuff that comes into our life. 
when it's really the enemy trying to derail you from what God has for you. And Jesus told Peter, Satan is about to sift you like wheat. He is going to come against you. But when you come out on the other side of it, Peter, you are going to be prepared to do my will like you've never been prepared before. You just have to endure it and trust me in this. See, God has a specific plan and a specific work. It's the reason you were created. And I hope that changes your mind a little bit about work. You see, work is ordained by God. And it's not just for this life. One of the more critical points to remember I, when I, is that I said that God is unchanging. And God does not just give you a job here on earth. The reason you were created with the talents and passions to want to do a specific job on earth is because it's going to launch you into the job that he wants you to do in heaven. You, you might say, well, you know, I'm a garbage man. Am I going to be a garbage man in heaven? No, it doesn't have anything to do. It has to do with being faithful with what he gives you here because it's going to be, you're going to be faithful to what he is going to give you in heaven. If you're one of those rare, blessed individuals that loves the work you do here on earth, then you're going to be overjoyed when you're doing it in a perfect world in heaven. Anybody here ever had a job that you couldn't wait to get to? I've had a few jobs like that. I loved going to work. When I was a paramedic in Lake Geneva, I loved going to work. I'd work all the time. I worked 132 hours straight once because I loved it so much. That's being blessed in this life. The second point that I want to bring out of these verses today is that Jesus is preparing a place for you. We've been talking about our place in heaven as being a position in which we reign and rule in God's kingdom. This place he is preparing for us is going to be a job very unique for us, and it's going to bring us the maximum joy that we could ever experience. And that's certainly what Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples here. But there's an additional truth that we see in Jesus' words and the way that, that he describes this in the Bible. He, Jesus, on purpose, uses the imagery of marriage in his description of going away and preparing a place for them. In a Hebrew mind, this would, would be what immediately came into their minds as he was saying this. We've talked a little bit about the marriage custom of Hebrews in Sunday school. I'm going to review it very quickly here. This is how marriage worked in first century Israel. Man and woman decide that they're going to get married. There's an engagement party. Whole town comes out. Big bash, blowout kind of party. And it's, it's basically, they are considered married at that point. And immediately after the party, the, bro the groom departs and leaves his fiancée behind. And he would go and prepare a place for her. He would go and build a house. He would go and, and get his business ready or, or buy some land for a farm. And he would go and, and do all these kind of things and get ready um, for his wife to come and, and have a place where she could reside and have a place that, that they could live together and be happy together in. And while the future groom is gone, the future wife undergoes beauty treatments and extensive training on how to be a, a godly wife and mother to future children. And then one day, the groom returns and their official marriage begins. Now, it's a short version of marriage customs. 
And this is the imagery that Jesus is, is using with his followers in this upper room. Jesus is saying right now, he's going to prepare a place for us. And he's using this imagery of, a 20, of the first century wedding to explain this to them. What does this mean for you and me? It means that he is talking about becoming our bridegroom. That he is so concerned about our, with our joy, with our happiness in heaven, that he is going to prepare a place specifically for you, 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 and you. Everyone has a specific place that he is preparing. And it's going to bring you the greatest amount of joy. It's going to bring us the greatest amount of peace, the greatest amount of just absolute fulfillment to have this position in heaven. Why did he do this with these men? Because he had to know that their relationship was about to change with him. You remember how much rivalry there was among the disciples? Remember James and John's mom trying to shoehorn a better position for them in the Bible? Remember Peter looking at John and saying, what about him? You remember the disciples being angry with each other over perceived favoritism? In heaven, you're not going to have to worry about Jesus spending more time with other people and not enough time with you. Because your bridegroom is omnipresent. It means he's everywhere at once. Your bridegroom is omniscient, which means he knows everything. Your bridegroom is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful and can meet your every need. This position that he has for you, he's going to be right alongside you in the, with the Holy Spirit to make sure that everything goes according to plan, that there is no bad day at work. That's an awesome promise that we see in his word. This is the place that he is preparing for us. And that's why Jesus calls us his bride. Because he's showing us that kind of love and that kind of passion that he has to make sure that everything is taken care of for us when we get there. And not only taking care of us for us when we get there, but taking care of for us right here on earth. Because this is the preparatory ground for heaven. This is where we get to develop the character. This is where we get to develop the passion for Jesus that we're going to need to be able to go into that position in heaven. Jesus is pointing out the intimacy of the relationship that we are going to have in God's kingdom as we do the work that he has for all of us. But it begins right here. It begins with changing our minds about this four-letter word called work. 